0: www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. In today's episode, I interview a trailblazer in the financial world of alternative investments. Allison Taylor has grown her company from three to fifty employees over the last decade and a half and we have delved deep into what are alternative investments, how they are helping business owners on two levels. One, if they're looking for financing and capital, want to do it in a debt way without giving up equity and the banks are not of assistance. And two, what if you wanted to invest in a fund that invested into those types of businesses? It's a great interview and I hope you'll join me. This is The Real Bottom Line where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. And today our guest is Allison Taylor. She is CEO, co-founder and portfolio manager at Invico Capital. Welcome, Allison.
1: Thank you, I'm so glad to be here today, Wendy. I'm
0: so excited too, especially as you are originally a Halifax girl. Actually, um,
1: Nova Scotian, but from New Germany, Nova Scotia. So pretty small town in Nova Scotia. There
0: you go. I know where it is. Uh, That's exciting. And now you're in the big smoke of Calgary. Uh, How did you end up there?
1: Well, when I finished uh, high school, I I ended up going to university in Ontario. And really that was because of the scholarship opportunities I had in Ontario. Um, Mm -hmm. At the time, which I don't really know if it's the same case today, Um, university was pretty expensive in the Maritimes in particular. Tuition was more than it was in other places. And I got a scholarship to go to school in Ontario, so I decided to, I guess, move my roots to Ontario. And then I was working in Toronto and decided, as exciting as it was to work and live in Toronto, it was a little bit too big for me coming from the Maritimes. So I just um, moved farther west and ended up in Calgary. And I always tell people this next stop's Hawaii because I just keep moving farther west. But I don't think that's anytime soon. (laughs)
0: Definitely would be a change in temperature at this time of year.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and so you've had an interesting journey. You're a woman in finance. You're a CEO in finance. And I know we're doing a, a a panel for Women's Day shortly that will highlight just how rare a beast that is. How did you end up in finance? What drew you into that sphere?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting uh, story, actually. So I'm I've always been really good in math, which I know a lot of young um, young women or girls always say, "Oh, I'm not very good in math." But I was quite the opposite, so I was really good in math. And so I decided when I was in university that I would study to be an actuary. So because I was good in math, so I was studying. Um, fun science. A, exactly. <laughs> so I was studying to become an actuary, and I did actually, out of university, go um, to work at a pension consulting firm in Toronto, and um, I guess. Uh, ironically, they decided to change the rules to become an actuary. And At the end of the day, I was kind of halfway through the exam process and they didn't grandfather. And I thought, you know what? Nuts to this. I'm not going to. I was just studying like 40 or 50 hours a week and working 40, 50 hours a week. And I just thought, you know what? I, I'm not enjoying this. So I, I should go do something else. And so I thought, well, I want to continue to leverage off my skill set and my knowledge in, um, you know, analytical knowledge and capabilities. So I decided to go back to school and do my MBA in finance and accounting. So obviously being numbers oriented and it's kind of funny actually when I was doing my MBA, this job postings came up and one of my classmates said, oh, you should go apply for investment bank and you're really good at finance. And I was like, I don't, I don't think I really want to be an investment banker. Well, apparently I didn't, but I did go do it for the summer and I thought it was pretty cutthroat. So I think the big thing for me was, um, I think in investment banking, at the end of the day, I always tell people it's really good experience. You get a really good, I guess, kind of feel for what's happening. But unless your most important thing in life is making money, that's probably not the long term uh mm. career choice. And for me, obviously, I think there's so many other things outside money. So I decided, you know what, this isn't going to be for me in the long run. Although I did like the intellectual challenge and the excitement of doing M&A, but I just didn't like the intensity or the, I it, for me, it wasn't even so much the intensity. It was more. You know, you come into work and it was like you had to be the last one to leave. I'm like, well, if I don't have work to do, I'm going to leave. And I remember when, when I was doing the summer job, it's like, I'm done my work. I'm going to go. And they're like, no, you're not going to leave. I'm like, yeah, look at me. I'm in my coat and I'm leaving. And they're like, wow. So I think for me, I just was like, I'm not going to put time in just to make it look like I'm busy. So mm-hmm. when I graduated with my MBA, I decided to take, like, I'd almost call it an MBA light route and go work at um, Ernst Young in their corporate finance group. And it was a great experience for me. And you know being at a big firm, you obviously get a lot of uh training, which I think was great, and I got a lot of uh additional skill sets that I didn't learn necessarily in my MBA. And the funny thing is going into my MBA, I was like, you know, my big goal is to work at a massive company. Like I want to work at the biggest company ever, which earns you almost like 110,000 people. So I was really living the dream working at a large company. But then I realized I actually wasn't a fan of the bureaucracy. And I didn't really, I didn't really appreciate going into the, into the space, what that would be like. And I, And I understand the bigger the company, the more, you know, rules and policies and procedures you have to have. But at the same time, when you had to go down to Toronto to get approval on what pitch you could put on the front of a pitch deck, I, that was kind of the, like, the, I guess the clencher for me was like, you know what, This I don't think long term I'm, I'm going to do this. And so, ironically, um, one of the guys I was working with at the time, uh, he was like, yeah, we, we should spin out and start up our own firm. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe. Um, and here I am 17 years later. So it was just. It's kind of funny because some people know going into it, I always want to be an entrepreneur and that's kind of what I want to do. And for me, that wasn't the, the case at all. So I think it, that was kind of I think that's fairly unique because a lot of people say, oh, you must have always known you wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wouldn't consider myself a huge risk taker, but I think it's all relative. Right.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So well, that's,
0: that's kind of a I, I yeah, long winded story. <laughs> Well, no, it's a fascinating one because it's, everyone's journey into entrepreneurship is a little different. And what I enjoyed about your story is uh, there's a, a point along the way, whether we go in it one way or the other, that we become unemployable by others. <laughs>
1: <Fair enough. laughs>
0: because now that we're used to kind of calling the shots, running the show, all that thing, it makes it harder to come in under others, potentially. So what have you learned? How big is your firm now? Uh, what does your firm do? Yeah,
1: so we're um anywhere about plus or minus 50 people. So we've yes. grown a lot. Obviously, when we started back in 2005, there was basically three of us. Um So the growth has been tremendous. And in fact, I believe in 2022, we added 27 people. Of course, there was some natural attrition. So we, even in the last three or four years, have really been on quite a trajectory of growth. Um, So basically, at the end of the day, uh, we are an alternative investment management company. So we're basically structuring and managing products for investors that aren't publicly available in the public market. So they don't have underlying stocks and exposure to the volatility in public markets. So we're basically uh, creating um, alternative funds, different structures and different industries to provide those types of opportunities to retail investors. And the reason why I, I focus on the retail investor side is that, um, a lot of people I know sometimes I present and I'm like, how many of you own alternative investments? And like, maybe half of them put up their hand. I'm like, how many people here are, you know, employed and have Canada pension plan, uh, assets in, you know, as a part of your retirement? And everybody puts their hand up. I'm like, well, you're all invested in alternative investments, whether you know it or not. Um, oh, so obviously, um, yeah, so alternative investments is an area where, you know, endowments and pension funds have been investing for quite some time and depending on the, Particular endowment or pension plan, whether it be university endowment or, um, you know, Canada pension plan, for example, anywhere from like 45 to 55% of the portfolio is focused on assets outside the public markets. And a lot of people don't realize that the average retail investor, it's really difficult to get um, numbers on this, but I think it's somewhere south of 5%. So obviously they don't have a lot of exposure in this, in this area. And I think it's really twofold. Number one, it's education and knowledge. And number two is access. So what we're doing through our fund structure, we don't sell directly to investors. It only goes through, um, advisors that are registered, but we make our products available to those advisors and portfolio managers who can then make it available to their end investor. And so it's really filling a need. Um, and not here, obviously to tell people they should have 50 or 60% of their portfolio and alternatives, but obviously depending on your personal circumstances, your stage of life and your overall portfolio, there's definitely room for a, a portion of your portfolio into alternatives
0: that's such a critical piece of the market so when you buy when you're putting these funds together um, and you're investing how do you invest is it like in you're you're issuing debt for different companies are you buying you know maybe it's not traded publicly but you're taking an equity position how are how are you investing in these companies
1: Yeah, so I guess the answer is actually all of the above. So for us, we um, have a flagship fund that we manage internally, which is an income product. And we're really focused on generating income for investors. So at the end of the day, we do that through two uh, major avenues. One of them is through um, lending uh, money to companies through the private debt allocation. So basically, it can be public, could be private companies. It's a combination of both right now in the portfolio. We basically are meeting a need that traditional banks don't meet. So it could be that the banks aren't lending into that sector. It could be that the client needs the money more quickly than the banks can move. It can be, uh, you know, obviously a multitude of reasons why those companies come to us to borrow. Um, people, I guess, innately think, oh, it must be higher risk. That's not necessarily the case. Um, So that's basically one form. And these companies may need that money for growth capital. They may need it for an acquisition. There's various reasons why they need it. But the key thing for us when we're looking at those companies that are borrowing from us is, first of all, we want to look at the credibility and track record of the management because that's really important. Um, we also want to look at how we're going to get repaid because we typically a lot of times they call them bridge loans. And I always say you never want to be on the bridge to the never never land because that's not a good bridge to be on. So yeah. we kind of have to look and see how are we going to get repaid. It could be from, you know, once again, it could be that they're going to they're looking to sell the company and they just need to bridge through that sale. It could be that they're bridging through to some growth capital that they need to meet fulfill an acquisition or an acquisition or contract. So those are the different scenarios that we would look at. So that's one area in the portfolio that we're focused. The other area, which being based in Calgary is fairly unique, I think, is we actually invest in oil and gas assets. Um, But rather than invest in companies, we actually buy um right into the uh, actual well that's operating. So basically what we're doing is you'll have groups that are drilling uh, for wells and we'll just invest a small percentage. So it could be 1%, 2%. So they drill the well and we pay 1% or 2% of the cost associated with drilling the well. And then we get 1% or 2% of the revenue that's generated off the well, which is called a working interest. We're almost like JV partners, joint venture right. partners. Or the other way is we can participate through a royalty structure, which is no dissimilar to any other industry where you get paid an overriding royalty um, once you've invested. So for us, the key there, though, is that we actually, um, we as a corporation and part of that that team of 50 members, we have a dedicated energy team. So we have engineers on staff that obviously have the technical expertise to manage those assets. And so that's um, very important when you start to get into these you know, specific industries that you have the knowledge Basically, um, to be able to operate um, a team that can can make decisions about the technical aspects of those assets.
0: That's fascinating. So what does it I don't imagine if outside of the energy sector, do you have a typical ideal client that would lend with you? Like, is there a certain amount they need to be borrowing before it makes sense to come talk to you?
1: yeah so for us you know honestly, our fund now is four hundred and thirty million dollars approximately. so for us, we typically look kind of five million and plus you yeah. know when we were smaller, we do one or two million dollar loans, but to be honest, right now, it's just as much work to do a you know a five million dollar uh, loan uh, assessment as it is a one or two million. The other thing that actually differentiates us from banks as well, and they're just not set up. To do this type of lending is we'll do what we call this basically tranched approach. So for example, a group may come to us and say, I need 25 million. And I'll say, you know what? I'm sure you do need 25 million, but actually we're, we're going to look at the situation. We'll lend you 10 million, accomplish X, Y, and Z, and then we'll advance the next 15. So from Mm -hmm. our perspective, it works from a mitigating risk that we're only putting so much capital at risk at one time. But from a client's perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense for them because why should they pay interest on 25 million when really in the short term, they only need 10. The management team likes it because they know, you know, as long as they accomplish the milestones, they're going to get the money. So then they can go about their business. It's not as distracting to management. So that's worked out well. And for us, like I said, once again, banks aren't set up to do that. So that's one area where we can be competitive compared to other banks. From an industry basis, we're very diversified on our lending side of the portfolio. So really, at the end of the day, it's we lend against the, the best opportunities that come in um, that meet our criteria. So, um, you know, there are certain industries that we kind of shy away from. If we don't have the industry expertise, we always go in. You know, and I guess we always plan for the worst and hope for the best. (laughs) So we always go in, obviously, structure it so if things don't work out, we have the ability to take possession of the assets and work it out. Or um also things don't work out. Do we have the expertise either internally or through our network? They don't have to be internally per se, but we, could we rework this loan if we needed to? And so there's some industries, for example, mining, where we just don't have the internal expertise nor the expertise in our network, that that would be an area that we would typically shy away from. And I always say typical because, you you know, you never say never. It really depends yes. on the opportunity that comes forward. Um, but we're also able to... The other thing that's, I think, different from ourselves versus, uh, say, a, a traditional bank is is we can give you a quick no too, which I think is, is good for clients because a lot of times they'll be dealing at the bank and depending if they're dealing with like, like a local bank person, like for example, in your you know, I'm um, part of the country, they may be like dealing with a branch manager in Bedford. And he's like, oh yeah, we can do this, get me this, get me that. And all of a sudden it goes to Toronto or wherever Montreal for approval. And they say, oh no, we're not lending into that industry anymore. Meanwhile, the client spent all this time. Whereas yes. for us, They can give us something in and we can say, oh, yeah, no, that totally doesn't work for us within like basically a day or, yeah, okay, this is something that we could potentially work on. So that I think is a a differentiating factor as well.
0: That's huge. In you know, I I often think that the fact that you're that close to the client and making those decisions, you have more data than a package thing that goes off to a a call center or something. You know what I mean? Like an adjudication center in the middle of nowhere that's never met anybody involved in the
1: deal no absolutely yeah absolutely and we do actually have uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier we spoke today we actually do have an investment team member that lives in Halifax Um, so the majority of our team is based here in Calgary but we do have one individual who actually used to work for us here in Calgary but um, her family's out east and decided um, in the pandemic that she wanted to move back east so we obviously Mm -hmm. supported her in that region to to work remotely Um, but most of our investment team members are based here in Calgary in the head office
0: Uh, I'd like to ask a little bit about your growth and how you funded it. So the first thing I'd like to understand is I was at a recent fireside chat and Arlene Dickinson was speaking and she has started an interesting fund all related to agricultural food and the wellness space. It took her two years to raise a hundred million dollars. And how did you guys raise your money to get started? And what obstacles did you overcome during that process?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So for us, actually, um, we, when we founded Invico back in 2005, we were actually focused more on traditional private equity. Um, so basically back then, um, obviously the world was a very different place and we were doing what we would call back then blind pools where basically, to be honest, it was kind of like the trust me. So it was kind of like, okay, we're going to, you know, raise whatever, $10 million and we're going to put it into these types of companies and we anticipate we'll be able to get you this type of return. So really it was honestly friends, you know, friends and families and business associates are like, Hey, I'll put a hundred grand in or I'll put 50 grand in. So that was kind of the early days of kind of trust me and, and let's see where we're going to go from there. Um, obviously, we've evolved a lot from there. Part of, you know, we've learned a ton of things along the way. But one of the things that we learned, I guess, and as the market evolved was that people, re- we realized people really didn't want necessarily to necessarily be focused on the equity side of the balance sheet and swing for large returns. They were more focused on wealth preservation. I think that was more of a shift. That happened as a result of the financial crisis in 2008. I think in some ways people's expectations were grounded and they realized, you know what? I'm good with a 7, 8% return. I don't need to get 10, 15, 20, 25. So I think that was one of the things that helped us pivot. And then we also said, you know what? Let's be on the debt side of the balance sheet because we have security. Like I mentioned earlier, if things don't work out then we can basically take possession of the assets and then we can work it out on our own time frame. So that was one of the things I think that was success, the keys to our success was pivoting to the debt side of the balance sheet to get that security and focusing on structuring our products so that we could give people a preferred return. And I always say preferred because nothing's guaranteed in life except for death and tax, unfortunately. So um, we focus where we're like, okay, you're going to get the first X percent of the money that, you know, basically the return we're able to get and also basically designing the product so that we, we were aligned with our investors where we shared with the upside and the profit sharing. So that way it was like, you know, you get a preferred return. But then at the end of the day, if we get, you know, outside that return that we kind of targeted, then we can share. And people are like, OK, that's reasonable. Also, you know, having a management fee along the way, because I always I always say that used to we don't present so much anymore directly to investors because our we have a sales team as we've evolved that do that. But I would always say to investors when I was they'd, you know, presenting, they'd question me on my management fee. I'd say, you know what? It's amazing. People need to get paid to come to work every day. So that's why I need to charge a management fee. They don't, you know, typically people come to work for free. They're really not that great or, or they don't last that long. So that was part of our success too, was making sure we were, I guess, pivoting to where investors were looking to get to the returns and what was important to them from a risk reward perspective. And then basically once we structured the product, um, securities, uh, rules had evolved such that you had to be registered to raise capital in the private markets in Western Canada or in fact across Canada. And I guess we were always a fan of that because I think registration and, and regulations there for a reason. And so for from our perspective, we started our early days, we were presenting to end investors and in, in raising capital through what's known as the exempt market dealership channel, which is really a conduit for private capital markets groups across Canada to raise money in a regulated environment with some oversight from the regulators, which I'm a fan of, because unfortunately a lot of people that typically were working in those industries prior to the regulation were not necessarily the most toward people. Um, So that was kind of where we started. And then when we got our, I guess, enough of our capital um, base under our assets under management in the fund, then we started to broaden our scope to work with larger groups and with banks. Um, and as the market has evolved and people realize, as I mentioned earlier, that alternative investments are a key part of an of, uh, underlying retail portfolio. Um, we've had more and more adoption and broaden our distribution channel. So now we would distribute our product through over 30 financial groups within Canada. And then within each of those groups, they obviously have hundreds of advisors. So right now we do distribute our product to a large um, group of advisors across the country, um, which means at the end of the day, we can meet more and more investors' needs for their portfolio.
0: Your business is making a profit. You're growing. But you may still feel like you don't fully have a grasp on how to make the best use of this success Don't worry, you're not alone. Hi, I'm Wendy Brookhouse, creator of the Total Wealth Accelerator and host of this podcast. I've developed a quick and easy tool that will give you a detailed snapshot of where you're currently at in your business and wealth growth and how you can improve upon it. It's called your financial diagnostic score. It's completely free and you'll instantly get the results. So head over to totalwealthscore.com right now and see where you can focus to grow your wealth. So it was a kind of a combination of how you started and faith in your abilities that people would give you some cash to go. Then it was a combination of as you made more money for your clients, you were participating in the upside. So then you have more money to invest, and also some regulation shifts and just some shifts in the market about perception about what was important to the to the investor. That's right. That's yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so you go in from three to fifty. Tell me about the biggest lessons you've learned. Top two lessons of growing from three to 50 in that period of time from a growth of
1: the company perspective. I'd say so two lessons that I learned. I would say basically the two things are one of my mottos. Actually, you probably if you were to interview any of my employees, they would tell you don't make other people's problems your problems. So that's one thing. (laughs) Um, Number one. Number two, not everyone's going to be happy. And I don't mean that necessarily from an investor perspective, but I just mean when you grow from three people to 50 people internally, you're always going to have different dynamics. So you're going to have to make tough decisions um, that not everyone's going to agree with. So that's the unfortunate part. And that fact is true, whether it comes through individual, um, individual investors or employees. So, you know, obviously as um, the firms evolved and we worked our way through a pandemic, you know, there were certain decisions and things that you had to make that people, not everyone's going to agree with. So that's the unfortunate part. You can't make everybody happy. So you have to realize that as well.
0: And as you grow, one of the, I read this interesting quote uh, today, and it was when you double your sales and your profit, you have to change over half your employees and half your systems. How do you relate to that quote, that kind of methodology or that sentiment?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair because I think what I would say from the early days honestly we're even if we go back like 17 years ago every time we grew, it was kind of like a bandaid and you kind of like on the system perspective, and you just kind of stick a band-aid on, stick a band-aid on. And then like one day you're like, oh, I think these band-aids are all going to blow off the system and it's going to, you know, everything's going to just implode. So I think the systems are really important, especially if you do like we have over between our cell, our, our internal product that I talked about and third party um, asset managers that we work with and we run their products. We've over 10,000 investors in our database. So we've had to really invest and evolve our back office systems um, mm. so that. I would definitely echo that. Like I haven't run those stats specifically, but I do know for sure that in the last three or four years, even alone, we've invested a lot in our technology and our systems. And obviously, as I mentioned, we've grown our base of employees because as you grow, different demands come upon you. You realize, okay, I can't be answering investors' calls anymore. I can't even talk to advisors anymore. I need a sales team that can manage that for me. I need an accounting team that can manage all the, you know, Detailed inquiries from a tax perspective or from a county perspective. But I think the other big thing you need to do as a leader is you need to learn to delegate trust and, and empower your employees, which I think is a big mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make, is mm. that they don't empower their employees. Because typically, let's be honest, most entrepreneurs are type A and control freaks for the most a part. A little, just a little. So that is probably one of the most difficult things um, for people to learn is how to delegate and and empower and trust your employees. Because, you know what, they always say no one's ever going to do it the same way you're going to do, but that doesn't mean it's it's not going to work. Right. So I think that's important for entrepreneurs when they're out there and they're growing to recognize that at the end of the day, um if you want to be successful, you need to to let go of certain things.
0: Did that come naturally to you, Allison, or did you have to? hire a coach did you like how did you get yourself to a place where this is second nature i
1: think for no i didn't hire a coach i think for me the biggest thing was hiring people that you can trust i think it starts with trust Mm -hmm. so obviously if you trust them then you're going to give them you know, a little bit, give them a little bit more and empower them. And so I think that's really key. According to my thirteen year old, and she wouldn't say it maybe today, but she said, Oh Mom, you're so lazy. I don't know, I'm so lazy. You delegate everything to everybody. I'm like, no, that's what you need to do. So I think that's an interesting perspective coming from a kid. I was like, Yeah, it could be called a lot of things, but lazy's probably no, not I'm on one the of list. <laughs> no, exactly. So I thought that was pretty funny that she looked at it that way. And I guess I didn't even really realize that I was doing it until I started to try to make or some of my senior employees, and I know I can think of one in particular. He's like, I'm really trying to do it. I'm trying to delegate. I'm trying to learn from you. So I think, honestly, it came naturally to me to delegate. And I think part of it is you realize there's only so many hours in a day. I can't do all this. Like When we started Vico, I did the books myself. So that tells you like and now we have i mean I think our largest team, I not think the largest team we have of one particular department would be our kind of accounting and operations team, which was sixteen people, so obviously, they're a big chunk of the fifty, and honestly, obviously, I oversee that, but i I have nothing to do with the detail day to day um in that department they they manage it all for me, so
0: I kind of like the thought that you you used to do it so that you would be grounded in what it should look like and have some critical thinking ability around, but oh, does this look right or does this not look right?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Absolutely. Like I can pretty quickly look at something and go, yeah, that doesn't look right. Or that, you know, directionally, I don't think that's in the right direction and can inquire. And, and it, I think it's it's actually a, really a bit of a reality check for some of the newer employees we have when I ask some of those kind of questions. They're probably thinking, how did she know that?
0: <laughs> I, uh, I have the ESPN is what I would say. Yeah, um, exactly. The uh, question, it leads naturally into my next question, which is, you know, when you look at your role, CEO, co-founder, portfolio manager, portfolio manager feels really in the business versus CEO, which feels like it's on the business. What percentage of your time do you spend thinking about the future and where the business might go versus you're doing stuff in the business?
1: Yeah, so from the portfolio management perspective, like we actually have now, once again, as we've evolved, we have a chief investment officer who's oh, obviously definitely. running the day-to-day of the investment team, if you okay. will. So we basically divided our, from the portfolio management perspective, we divided ourselves into kind of two um investment committees. So, and they both meet, well, the diversified investment committee, which is basically the one that's allocating to the private debt sleeve of the portfolio, we meet mm-hmm. weekly. So obviously I sit those committee um, meetings and obviously I'm available as needed, you know, on a day to day basis for input or, or, you know, ideas on the direction we're going. But typically, um, most of my work on that is done at the investment committee level because I have a whole team of, of people that are preparing for that investment committee meeting. So uh-huh. the value that I'm adding along with my business partner is in those meetings saying, what about this? What about that? Questioning, like, just yes. like you would in any other larger organization when something comes to investment committee. And we have the same similar committee on the energy side, which typically means every other week, although sometimes lately it seems every week if we have a lot of deal flow and that obviously we have different people that sit on that committee because two engineers internally sit on that committee. But the chief investment officer, myself and my business partner are the three portfolio managers in the firm and we sit on both of those committees. So that would be really where I'm spending my time on the portfolio management side would be more at a governance level, not into the day-to-day nitty-gritty. Although having said that, there will be times when if I'm not comfortable with something, I'll pop open the model and take a look through the detailed model to make sure um, things are, are moving in the right direction. So that's really where the portfolio management side comes into play. So I would say the majority of, not I wouldn't say majority, but probably It depends on the day. A lot of my time is spent on human resources items, which is part of it is about planning for the future and succession and, and and moving um, things around as you evolve, you have to be willing to to adjust with change. And I think that's one challenge people have when they're growing a firm is, you know, when you talked about the employees when you said the employees turn over a lot of times, naturally people turn themselves over because they don't adapt well to change. So that's one of the things that's a constant, I guess, you know, draw my time is human resources issues. And then of course I have to kind of carve out, I try to carve out one day a week to be focused more on the vision and the strategy. And that's where my portfolio and my, sorry, business partner and I who are both portfolio managers are thinking about the new funds that we're adding in different areas that we can go into. So we launched a partnership last year with Morgan Stanley on a fund that we made available exclusively through us in Canada. Um, We're looking at another partnership right now. So there's lots of different things that we're doing constantly to see how we can evolve. And as the industry grows, where we can meet that need for the end investor. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what we're here for is to meet the needs of end investors in terms of helping them preserve their wealth and, that is focused strictly on private markets. So we are we are both, I guess, able to manage public portfolios. We have that credentials and capabilities, but that's not the area that we're playing in.
0: So fascinating. So at minimum, 20% of your time is really forward thinking.
1: And how do you stay on top of trends? Um, For the most part, it's just reading things. I don't watch TV, so reading articles online, going to conferences, that's really important, um, both for networking and to kind of, you know, speak with other players and, and leaders in the industry. So more and more, I'm doing a lot of that because this is a global industry. Um, the trends are very uh, global oriented. So, you know, most recently I was down in Miami at a private credit conference. Ironically met a lot of Canadians down there. Um, it was nice to get to Miami in, in January too, not going to lie. But, uh you know, obviously that's really important to keeping up with what's happening in the industry. So those kind of events um, on, a, on a more global scale and then locally here as well, participating in different industry events. So, you know, tomorrow evening I have a networking event that I'm going to, which is an industry association, just talking to people in the industry. And then, of course, obviously reading, whether it's industry publications and Quite frankly, uh, obviously staying abreast of public, public, uh, you know, public events, um, that are happening, but also like on the energy side, for example, that the, um, individual heads up our energy practice, they're constantly sending us updates kind of on the trends of where quantity cycles are going, what's happening in the industry. So, and my chief investment officer is constantly bringing forward articles that are relevant to us as an industry or us as an organization. So I rely on my employees to bring forward those types of things as well.
0: Amazing. What is your vision for Vico Capital? Like where is it what when it grows up or you know 17 <laughs> it's a teenager still when it grows up <laughs> what will it be?
1: Um I think from our like I mean what will it be when it grows up? Oh wow that is such a tough question. Um from our perspective we like to already consider ourselves one of the leaders in the alternative space. I mean it is like I mentioned to you earlier ironically we're one of the longest dated players in this industry so uh-huh. even though you know especially if you focus on retail investors because if you look actually at a lot of the other quote-unquote private equity or alternative uh, fund management companies many of them are just strictly focused on institutions uh-huh. so obviously there's a whole different dynamic of being involved in the retail space and making yourself available to the average retail investor that to me is filling a I don't want to say larger need because obviously it's important for institutions to get that exposure as well. But I think we pride ourselves from that perspective of making our product available to the average investor. So we have investors in our fund that would have $5,000 invested and we have investors in our fund that would have multiples of million dollars invested, right? So it's it's very, I guess, accessible from that perspective. So from our standpoint, one of our visions, which I would say we've basically achieved is making our product available to the average investor. And that's really important for us as we continue to grow the organization and bring out additional products is that we continue to, I guess, stay true to our retail roots, I guess, from that perspective, because I think it is really important to meet that need for average retail investors to be able to access something outside the public markets. So that's one of our big visions as we move forward as an organization.
0: That's an interesting win because I think the other side of the win is actually the companies that you make the investments in whether that's through issuing of debt or what have you, because, and you're closer to them than say, if you were to buy equity in Apple, you know, Yeah, you're closer. No, it's to true. Them.
1: Yeah, it's true. I think like some days, obviously, and it's funny because people say, well, how often do you talk to your portfolio companies? Like, honestly, it really depends depending on where they are in their life cycle. So there's some um, portfolio companies that we don't talk to more than, you know, monthly or quarterly. And then there's some depending on what where they're going through in their growth stage, we may be talking to them weekly and mm-hmm. some of them, if they're like on our watch list, they'll be like daily, right? So it's, it's very, it is a very active role. And that's why we have a large team to help us obviously manage those day to day obligations and, and uh, making sure we're meeting the needs. And I mean, it's interesting too. If you look at it from a different perspective, we are also meeting the needs on the, I guess on the borrowing side that some of these, and many of them are entrepreneurs started companies. We're actually yes. making that you know making capital available to them especially if you look at it on a debt perspective, where they don't need to dilute the equity of their firm yes. by getting access to capital. And a lot of them get that. Like, and it's interesting because people go, wow, like you're lending money at like, I mean, obviously interest rates have come up a lot as of late, but even, you know, us lending money at 14%, people are like, wow, like how can, you know, clients afford to pay that? It's like, well, if they have a contract that they're fulfilling and their is 30%, then sure they can afford to pay, you know, 14% debt. Um, I'll spend $14 to make 30. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. 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 And that's part of it is education, right? Of educating these people about the need that you're fulfilling. And quite honestly, we're creating employment on the lending side of the portfolio as well, yeah. because these are companies that are growing because we're giving them the capital um, to be able to do that. And, and that's another important point is we actually structure a lot of our loans, depending on the circumstances where we'll say, okay, we'll charge you this interest rate. And, but basically, you know, you're worth so much today, but with our money, you're going to create this much value. We want a piece of the upside. So we align ourselves to, to what they're using the capital for as well, which I think is also a great alignment, but it is creating job employment and future growth in the Canadian economy vis-a-vis the lending of our money, which ultimately comes from the average retail investor, which is kind of a nice feeling for them as well.
0: Absolutely. Uh, just because this is a topic near and dear to both of us, I'd like to throw out, it's interesting, your, you've built this massive financial company of 50 people it's massive for a lot of small people right for small organizations but you've also managed to maintain 50 to 60 percent of your staff in all levels of positions are female is that a how do you keep that focus how do you challenge the status quo in the industry where we just don't have that that percentage anywhere else
1: Yeah. So I think it's twofold. Like ironically, obviously when we set it, when we started in Vico, there was a few things when Jason and I sat down to decide like kind of how we were going to run the firm, you know, what were things were important to us. And, you know, honestly, gender diversity was not a thing that came up. Like for us, it was more like we want to pay for performance. And I've heard some of my employees say like, yeah, you definitely reward high achievers, which is great. Like we're small enough that we can recognize and, and reward high achievers. Um, and maybe that's some of the natural attrition of people that leave. They just didn't like the, I guess, I don't know what kind of what descriptor I'd use the fast pace, I guess, environment that, you know, you know, obviously we work really hard here, um, but we also make sure we try to get a balance and have different, we have corporate team events every every quarter so we can, you know, celebrate with our employees as well. But when we sat down and kind of said some of the things that were near and dear to us and what we wanted to instill in our organization, gender diversity was not one of them, ironically. But having said that, I think naturally, like I partnered with somebody who obviously is very um, supportive of women, which I think is really important because I think a lot of people when they hear, oh, gender diversity, it's all about the girl power, it's got to be all women. But at the end of the day, I'm partnered with a man. And I yeah. think it's also really powerful, like we'll go into meetings and I'll come out in our perspective and perception on something that happened in a meeting is completely different, which I think has really been one of the keys to our successes. we'll come out of the meeting. I'm like, ooh, that person didn't like that at all. He's like, really? I didn't get that at all. And so part of it is, is that, I guess, different viewpoint. Um, so it's kind of ironic that. We didn't make a focus, at least in the early years, about gender diversity. It just kind of evolved that way. And so when I look back, I'm like, I think the reason or not think, I mean, from my perspective, why it has evolved like that is that people realize that when they came here, I didn't you know, we didn't care if they were women or a man or woman, you know, what ethnic diversity we were going to reward people for contributing to the organization. And that obviously Felt like a welcoming environment, I think, for a lot of women. So I think I, I can only speak for my female friends that are in other industries or in other organizations. And we, you know, go for dinner and they're all talking about how frustrated they are about being, you know, basically uh, discriminated against as being a woman in their current environment. I strongly believe that wouldn't happen at Vigo because we have women at all levels of representation. So that's continued to, I guess, perpetrate You know, women coming to work here, people talk. Interestingly enough, we've had what I call the boomerang. So we had a summer student that worked for us years ago and she was a superstar. And I remember when she was graduating, she said she was so nervous. She's like, I took another job. I'm going to work at CIBC in their rotational program. I'm like, that's awesome. That'd be a great experience for you. You'll see all kinds of different areas of the bank, and it will be very positive for you. And she's like, oh, I was so worried. And then, ironically, I kept in touch with her, and about, I don't know, probably eight months ago, I reached out to her and was like, hey, what's up? She's since left CIBC, was at another financial institution. I'm like, hey, have you thought about coming back to work in Vico? And she's like, hmm, maybe. So, you know, we went grabbed a coffee, and I just you know, continue the conversation at the end of the day, she was like, "Yeah, I'm sick and tired of being the only female in you know in the room when that we're discussing deals or different transactions. She was on the lending side at a bank, And so lo and behold, she started working here in August. So I think that has also been part of our success. Having said that, we've had some postings that we put up and we haven't had one one woman apply. Senior levels, unfortunately, there are. Like I've hired a headhunter and there's no women that apply. There's nobody they can find. So it does still exist out there where certain levels, you obviously can't find people, uh, qualified candidates, which is unfortunate. But we've been very, I guess, lucky in attracting female and retaining female t- talent. And I think that's the key thing is the retention of the talent. So I think a lot of people like this individual I'm talking about, she just got super frustrated at and she moved up very quickly at the bank. She was a superstar. They were not happy to lose her, but that was something that they couldn't, they couldn't address. And so obviously she left.
0: What's interesting for me uh, as I listen to the story is that you being a leader actually show us up as it's possible. And number two is that by creating a diverse organization, it's actually helped and you didn't even mean to. But it's it's now, you know, accelerating your growth because of that.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I know I actually met with a female portfolio manager at a conference in Toronto and she actually told me. So right now, obviously, ESG is very topical, but ironically, people, I don't know if they're like, Just, um, have lack of ability to focus, but they get from, they don't get past the E. They're just like all about the environment. But I'm like, no, no, there's the S and the G part too. And so, you know, she mentioned to me that she actually for the first time ever had a client that said to her, how many female portfolio managers do you have in, in the money that you're investing in? Like where you're placing your capital? And she's like, I had none. So of course I took the opportunity to go, yeah, that's why you should definitely invest in Vico.
0: Oh my God, Allison! this has been <laughs> phenomenal. I loved learning your journey. There's so many lessons in here, but I think one of the real bottom lines here is when it comes to building team, building organizations, it is about hiring people you trust and empowering them for the work. Thank you Absolutely. so much, Allison. Thank you. Wow, there was just so much learning in this episode. Do you want more? I have a special offer for The Right Entrepreneur, a complimentary one-on-one coaching session that is all about you, your business, and your goals so that you can accelerate your business and start to accelerate the growth of your net worth. Head over to wealthcoachwithwendy.com. There you will find a letter that kind of outlines all the details of this offer and also an application form. We have an application form because there's such a limited number of of slots that we're opening up for this that we want to make sure that the people that, um, uh, do are successful in getting the slot we can make the biggest difference with. So head over to wealthcoachingwithwendy.com and apply today. Thanks.